0: Software engineering is a new field, there are theories about how we should be building our systems, but these theories might change over time. And the same is true for engineering management. There are many successful examples of companies scaling with the same management hierarchies that have been pioneered by Microsoft and Google. But since everyone knows that those same techniques work, they get continually copied. Of course, that makes some sense because there's tremendous risk in pioneering a brand new management structure. There have been examples of successful software companies that have suffered tremendously because they decided to try an exciting new management structure. New software is much easier and safer to try than revolutionary new management structures. New software is easier to try in a company with a strong engineering team also because that engineering team is equipped to actually assess the new software and figure out if it's solving a problem rather than just introducing something new and flashy. Uma Chengunde is an engineering manager at Stripe on the compute team. Uma has worked in management for a decade and has worked in virtualization on infrastructure for even longer than that. Uma joins the show to give her perspective on management of engineers as well as management of compute infrastructure. We discussed some timeless principles of engineering management, as well as contemporary ideas around virtualization and compute. Uma, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. We had a nice conversation last time I met you at Stripe. And I'm looking forward to getting into more details around your beliefs around software engineering management and infrastructure and engineering at Stripe. So software engineering is a very new field. There is much unexplored territory in how software can be built. But the way that companies get modeled is often by copying the management systems that have worked previously and In some sense, this is a great strategy because if you've got a product that works, you can just copy the management style of Microsoft or of Google. Is there anything wrong with that strategy? Is there anything wrong with just copying the management structures if you have a product that's already working? This is a great question, by the way. It's actually one I
1: think about a lot. And I have a kind of nuanced answer. One is, there isn't anything wrong. In fact, you do want to actually consciously imitate the better things. And when I say this, some things that I have kind of observed that seem to work are organizational hierarchies. I think more, particularly more recently, a lot of companies have kind of played around with not having teams or having very fluid dynamic structures. And in my experience, that tends to work with smaller teams, but not doesn't really scale well. And so you see most companies eventually kind of converge into a more hierarchical organizational structure. And that seems to work. On the other hand, I think some things which don't work, and I think companies have wisely probably abandoned, are the way software itself is released, right? Uh, so when I started my career, I was working at VMware, that, and they were in the business of releasing on-prem software. So it was very waterf- waterfall-style, like year, multi-year releases. And that just doesn't work in a SaaS-based uh, business. And I think you'll see very few companies are that are in a SaaS model continue to use that release model. And a lot of things associated with that, for example, separate QA teams are less and less common now. Separate kind of release processes are less and less common now. The kind of the gating of releases is much less common and you're really in a world of continuous release. That's my view.
0: One area where it's, hard to know to what extent we should be copying is in the hiring process. So you know that if you copy the Microsoft style of hiring or the Google style of hiring, it's going to work to some extent. You are going to hire engineers eventually, but there's not a really good way to to test if that's an ideal strategy unless you do a B testing for your hiring process but then that's really hard because you have a very low sample size what's the process for developing a productive engineering hiring process?
1: okay and a really good question I like to think of it as while you can't really do a B testing what you can do is really gather data and like you know maintain data at every step of the process so where are you losing candidates? For example, what is your close rate of candidates once they get to offer? You can also, depending on like your process, you can actually ask candidates for their feedback, right? The best interview process, in my opinion, is one where even when you don't result in an offer, the candidate likes the process. And I think that is where you get through with constant iteration. A few things that I've seen that have evolved over the last decade are things like whiteboard coding, for instance, right? And I think that's just like a simple iteration of listening to candidates, listening to what folks like and turning it around and being like, okay, what are you actually trying to gain from a coding interview? And then saying, okay, what we're trying to test is people's coding skills and do we need a whiteboard to test those skills or can we actually let people bring in their own laptops and code out a problem? And so you've seen this shift happen. I think it's become more and more common across the industry. Another example is kind of where things have shifted pretty dramatically are puzzle questions, right? So this is, there was this whole era where puzzles of various types, such as like, you know, manhole covers and why are they around and things have really evolved there. And I think just going back to what is it that you're actually trying to gauge? What is it that you actually need of the person that you're hiring? And then iterating over that until and consistently getting feedback and listening you're essentially users in this scenario and making a better experience for them I think is is the way to go.
0: The manhole covers class of questions. I remember this this period of time where people love to talk about this like it was a sign that these companies were doing something distinctly correct by everybody was celebrating the manhole covers question, as if this was like a breakthrough in how to vet people for engineering roles. It's just funny, like if something stands out as novel and a company is doing it, you know, we can have this tendency to believe this company has had some sort of breakthrough. How else would they have come to such a crazy idea of asking people about the, the shape of manhole covers other than the fact that this is actually a magical panacea for solving your hiring problems?
1: And which is why I think it survived for so long, right? And I think it was like the sheer novelty of it. And I think it also appealed to people for good reasons, which was like, oh, we're actually trying to gain your ability to solve a puzzle in an intuitive way versus something else.
0: That's true. Yeah. Very, very good intent.
1: Yeah. Like it resonates with people like, oh, you're actually like looking for something core and fundamental versus some other label. So there were good reasons for it. And it survived for good reasons. But there's so many factors that influence hiring. For example, the market has shifted so dramatically, right, uh, in the last decade, where where your ratio of jobs to candidates has really turned around. And I think a lot of those
0: things make a big difference
1: in the way interview processes work.
0: The idea of copying what is working in the industry or what people are talking about in the industry also happens with technology decisions. So some engineers today feel like there is an inherent benefit in picking up Kubernetes or going to microservices. On the other hand, sometimes hype is beneficial because it pushes you towards the new technologies What's the right measure of adjusting to the hype of trying out new technologies versus using the ones that you know do the job?
1: I think deeply understanding what your use case is, like really trying to understand what is it that you are building as a company, as a team, making sure that I think a lot of people get swayed in the hype when there's sometimes like a missing element of kind of grounding in what they are building and where they're trying to go. So if you don't know what you're building or where you're trying to go or what your kind of, you know, essentially your tech stack mission is and you don't have these grounding principles, then people tend to get distracted and kind of clutch at straws. And sometimes those become like the most hype technology of the day. I think one way that I like to think of it is, what is it that is really core to your business? What is it that's really core to your tech stack? And improving that and then using what's available to make that choice. There's a really good, I think, podcast by or blog post by Intercom around build less software. And I think that really resonates with me. But I think where you want to be careful is you want to make the right trade-offs. You do want to optimize and develop for the new tools because that opens up that can potentially just like unlock huge gains for you. For example, if you are in a there is no benefit, for example, if you're doing exactly what Kubernetes provides to trying to build your own internal distributed scheduler, like there is literally no benefit at all. So if if what it provides is what you need, then yes, you should do that because then you will it unlocks all these people that already have this expertise that can then come in and start working on you and can be productive from the beginning. But the other example is when things don't work is, oh, you don't quite understand whether you need microservices or what, whether your monolith is still good enough for your but you decide that, oh, microservices are the way to go and you don't understand the trade-offs and you go ahead and start breaking things up. I think the easiest way to actually think about this is understand why you're doing something and then de-risk to the extent possible. I'm a huge believer in prototyping early and often and really like testing things out rigorously in a smaller environment before adopting any large migrations or any wholesale
0: migrations. The run less software idea from Enercom, we had an interview with, with Rich about that idea. And my recollection of that idea is it's in some ways the expansion of the idea of having blessed languages so at google you know google in the early days decide okay everybody was trying different languages some people were using Perl, some people are using you know java and eventually they just decide okay we're only going to use these languages and if you want to go outside of these languages you need to have a really good reason because we just need to have a little bit more control. We need to have a little bit more constraint around what languages we're running across our stack. And the way I saw the run less software idea is it's an expansion of that idea where you expand it to tools and cloud services where you say, if we are going to run a relational database, we're using Amazon RDS and we're using Postgres and that's it. And if you, ha- if you need to use MySQL, you better have a really good reason for it. And I can see that being really beneficial if you're talking about well-defined things like relational databases, non-relational databases. You need a compute unit. You're using a container. It's deploying to our internal paths. Take it or leave it. That's, that's what you got to do if you're working here. But it gets more complex if you start to talk about things like Redshift or BigQuery. If you Like, do you start to mandate your data warehousing tools? To what extent should we have these kinds of run-less software limitations? And what, what are the good standards to impose in this world of so many different tools that are available?
1: I think it really depends on, again, it kind of really goes back to your core stack and like what it is that you are trying to optimize for. So a few things to kind of think of there is what are you trying to build? And one of the things I liked in the Intercom post is what are your key differentiators and what is like, so what you try to build more of is like your key differentiator. So you build that in-house and what you try to buy off the shelf is something that is not your key differentiator. So I think like that's, that's one good metric to use. Another one that you kind of also want to balance is you don't want to Make your rules so rigid that people cannot innovate. Because then, then you're constraining future products or future development because it's not what's already core, what's all what's your core business today. But you might be stifling what is potentially the company's core business in the future. So in so you kind of want to have a balance where the majority of your infrastructure team's users are directed towards a sort of golden path and a sort of narrow kind of enclosure where everything is just easy for them but then you want to have a flexibility where if someone does want to explore outside this they are able to do this and you don't impose a high cost on them experimenting so you kind of want to have the balance so you don't you don't want to have people introduce 10 new languages but if some but if there is something that is really interesting and is useful for say a team, within the company you do want to allow them to experiment validate it prototype it and then probably say okay this is now proven it's worth and you bring it in so you you, don't, you want to reduce friction to trying out new things and then potentially adopting them or like letting them fail the majority of your users should have like a set of guidelines that should just be easy to follow
0: you're an engineering manager at stripe you are on the compute team if i want to instantiate a unit of compute to run something at Stripe, what's my interface for doing that? Am I deploying a VM? Is it a container? Is it deploying to an internal platform as a service? What does that deployment process look like? And what am I deploying? I
1: think the answer to this question is actually more complicated than I would like to answer right now. So the the short answer is we are aiming to provide an interface where it is as easy as possible. The longer answer is that we are not there yet. So essentially we have a combination of, we are not at a point where we can actually provide a simple push button solution, but we have a combination of tools, a lot of which are homegrown, which are essentially command line tools that allow you to provision a new service. And it is Currently, it actually takes more steps than I would personally like, but that is something that I think is really valuable to try and improve. So, this kind of goes back to the majority of the users should potentially just have like a couple of steps to deploy a new service. And then, if there's like a power user that needs a very specific instance or a very specific EC2 instance, for example, and they actually care about the underlying hardware. We don't restrain them from using that, and we actually allow them. So where we are currently is that it's a bit of a mixed bag, and what we're working on is actually a really good illustration of kind of separating your power users from the majority of your users, and we're trying to do that right now within our platform.
0: When should a company start to build this type of command lines, because I mean, to me, it makes complete sense for for a company of Stripe's size to have done this. But like, I think about Airbnb, for example, I think of Airbnb as kind of a contemporary of Stripe in terms of the company's maturity and uh, how much traction the company's had, the quality of engineers they've been able to hire. I have no idea if Airbnb has an internal PaaS or not. But I guess I'm wondering, for whom does it make sense to build this level of internal customization versus the kind of company that's just gonna say, look, our interface is AWS. Like, if you're an engineer here, you are working in the AWS console, that's what you do. Who should build their own internal, deeply technical systems like this?
1: I think, again, there's no simple answer to this. For example, uh, some of it actually depends on the timing of the company, right? Like when when was when was your company started? And there's things, there's decisions, for example, that we have ourselves made that maybe we we would not make if we were starting out today. So, to me, the intersection is what what is your company size, what are you building, but also like what's already available to you. So, for instance, if we were starting from scratch today we would probably start using Kubernetes from the beginning, and our architecture would look completely different. And AWS has already provided far more sophisticated tools that maybe some of our kind of like tools that we have built on AWS would not need to be built if we were building them today. On the other hand, maybe when you get to a much larger size, you kind of get to this kind of the extreme end where you actually start moving off the cloud completely. And then you actually need to build an entire set of tools from scratch. And that's kind of like the scale at which you're really large, like a Google or a Facebook. And so I think there is never an easy answer. And I think the same company will actually make different decisions based on its size, its time of creation, and its tech stack. So it's really it really has to be a decision made at that with, with those factors in mind. And you will actually, within the lifetime of a company, you will actually revisit those decisions many, many times. So I think an actual problem in my mind is if you make a decision and then you fail to realize when the decision is outdated. As an example, when I worked at a previous, at a different company, much larger they had a completely opposite view to open source software. They really did not believe in it at all because they were shipping on-prem software. But the downside of that was that we literally rebuilt very, very basic tools internally over and over again. As an example, like the simplest example is that we had something like Splunk that we had rebuilt from scratch internally. And when you think of things like that, just investing that much manpower into things over and over again. I think that is kind of like, you know, that, that's why you want to re-examine your rules. Like, is it so terrible to actually like, you know, buy software externally or do we have to build everything ourselves? So there's, it really is to, to me, It's it's more like you have guidelines and then you keep revisiting your guidelines over and over again versus never changing them.
0: When we last spoke, you mentioned that you were working on something, something service mesh. That was, I think, verbatim what you said. Yeah. And that was obviously funny to me because there's a lot of people in the world of software right now that are working on something, something service mesh, which is which is about how they would describe it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Describe the ideas around service mesh. First of all, why is this abstraction useful? And why is it? kind of a moving target. Why is the way that you think about service mesh today something something service mesh?
1: Yeah, so I want to first clarify. I did not actually say something something service mesh. I actually said something something Kubernetes because okay. I, even <laughs> even in a joke, actually everyone in our team has actually moved on. We don't even refer to it as a service mesh anymore because one, that term has gotten overloaded to the point of actually being meaningless. It doesn't really mean a lot anymore in my opinion to the point where you ask different people and you get a different answer and it isn't really clear this is
0: like the microservices version of big data nobody exactly. uses the term big data anymore
1: <laughs> exactly or cloud or you know where, where anything like literally anything can be can be overloaded so we we don't use that term internally anymore. I I think what we're trying to really focus on is what we're using is we use Envoy and we use it as a proxy. We use Envoy proxy. We're using it for a very specific set of scenarios. And that's very specific to us. That's how we we like to think of our tools, where it's like less about the terminology and more about exactly a scenario that we are trying to... Solve for that's very specific to us. Like this is the tools; these are its benefits. These are this is our problem. This is what we're using the tool for. And I think speaking about like technologies in those terms is far more useful than the kind of you know the 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 buzzword bingo kind of technology <laughs> usage.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely hearing a theme in what you're saying, which is look for solutions to specific problems you know i think this is definitely something that has has come clearer to me over time as you have as i've kind of realized that the way that companies actually end up making money is that they solve problems for customers that is who like people only pay money for software when it solves a problem for them and then if you're solving problems for customers that very easily boils down to you need to solve your own problems as well because you're always going to have problems, and therefore you're not looking for fancy new things to like do engineering diagrams around. You're just looking for solutions.
1: Yep, and I think that's one of the kind of key things for infrastructure teams as well. So it's literally like, what is it that your users need? And in this case, your users are the, are the other engineers that are using your services. And what are their problems and what are you trying to solve for that are their problems? And if you think, if you use that user-focused mindset, that's when you're likely to be successful versus if you go down the kind of adopting new technology or adopting new things without a specific problem, then you're likely to get very deeply into trouble.
0: You've worked in virtualization infrastructure for more than a decade what are your predictions for how virtualization software is going to be impacting organizations for the next five years?
1: That's a really good question. So I think I could be completely wrong in this. I think that the big changes have actually already happened, in my view, which is, which is the big change that I observed was where you moved from a world where you had people so so when you were like starting a startup in the 2000s you would literally go out and buy a sun server something some version of solaris have to provision it all of that and then vmware came came along and made made it all about vms where so people moved sun died and then you moved to a world where you would like buy vmware software and provision it on intel hardware and then have your own data centers and that's that's typically what most people's data centers look like. But currently, the abstraction has happened to a point where very few people even have to think about the underlying physical hardware. And to me, that is like the biggest shift that virtualization has made possible in the last two decades. And I think once you've gotten to that shift, the abstraction is built so so well that I think it's going to... We're already in a world where anyone starting a company today is unlikely to provision their own hardware unless they have like very specific reasons. We're already in a world where the default is to pick from a handful of cloud providers. And I think that shift is in is when I say has already happened to me, that has been like the biggest shift. I think what I expect to continue happening is this will just, you will continue to see more and more of this where there are still a lot of companies that exist that are kind of in the service of those on-prem data centers that are selling software, primarily those. And those will kind of consolidate over time. You will have only a handful, maybe even just like three or four major cloud providers that will exist. The other end, you'll have the really large companies that for their own reasons, like like Google or Facebook or similar will have their own data centers, but will only do so because they're at an extremely large scale. And then everyone else will kind of exist in some some of these worlds, and maybe there'll be a small niche hybrid world in between. But in my view, the abstraction will just kind of continue rising. So we're still at a point where you know people still actually think about EC2 instances and the underlying database and similar, but all the cloud providers are in their own ways building on top of that. So it's kind of, you're getting closer more and more to workflows and what users need versus having to think of the underlying uh, software that's like, you know, in terms of the hardware. So I think the abstraction and building the layers on top will just continue. But the biggest shift in my mind is has been this, this kind of complete shift where
0: you don't even think about your hardware. As the requirements for compute infrastructure have become more demanding for data engineering teams, machine learning teams, how have you seen the requirements for spinning up infrastructure diverge between the data teams and the service based teams, like just the microservices teams?
1: Can you say more about what you mean about the question?
0: if i'm doing data engineering workloads m- at least my understanding is i need like a gpu or i need like a bigger machine i'm going to need more ram to to fit all the data on a single node or maybe i'm just using redshift and that's abstracted away from me so i have i, I don't know it depends you know I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on that but if i'm just spinning up a container that's going to be talking to a database and getting you know doing a little bit of processing and then returning that result to whoever requested something, the requirements are much more lightweight. I'm just wondering if the if you've seen in your time at Stripe a divergence between, a growing divergence between what the data teams need out of their computer infrastructure and what just random services need.
1: Yes, I think it, it's less because we're structured in a way that we're like further below. All the other teams, we, we do see this, but I think we are still not at a point where... Or rather, I have not been here long enough to see the sharp divergence. I think what is clear, though, is that, yes, we have, there are certain workloads that have very specific requirements. And that has been increasing. And I think, for instance, are really large workloads that need uh, very specific instances of our cloud provider, for instance, to the extent where we have to like request specific versions of things. But I think another key thing is just the sheer cost of some of running some of these workloads and that that adds up over time. But I don't think at Stripe itself, we are structured necessarily in a way where there's, where we have not gotten to a point where it's completely like black and white. I think our workloads are like still very much all mixed up together. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, definitely. Tell me more about how cost management affects engineering decisions at Stripe
1: We are still early on in our journey where I think we still don't try to make decisions based on pure cost because I think for any company that's in the Bay Area the highest cost tends to be engineering cost like actually the actual individuals right versus uh, the cost of your cloud provider or similar. The way at Stripe you're trying to think of this, and this is actually a different team, which I really like uh, because you have an entirely separate team that's thinking about this problem, is you try to actually provide the data to everyone about how much expense they are generating or like how expensive certain things are. So versus trying to gatekeep or police different teams, you actually try to provide them the data with which then they, in turn, can make their own decisions. And that's the kind of general guideline. So the first step in all of this is actually trying to figure out where you're, where you're spending the most. And then based on that, you can then make decisions versus trying to make a decision about, oh, we're going to spend spend less and like go, go find the savings, right? Kind of goes back to knowing, I think my, my overall theme in all of this is really, really understanding what your problem is first and then trying to solve it. Because if you don't know where you're spending the money or how you're spending it or what workloads are the most expensive, you, can't, you, you might not be solving the right problem.
0: As an engineering manager on the compute team, what does your day-to-day work look like? Tell me about a day in the life of working on the compute team.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think my, my work looks a lot like most managers at Stripe. Uh, especially on the infra side, I manage a team that's actually four sub teams, and currently I'm trying to hire for one of those teams, so I hire a manager. So a lot of my time typically goes in interviews and outreach, and I actually spend a fair amount of time try- time trying to actually reach out to candidates directly myself. So there's a good kind of good amount of time I spend in hi- spend hiring, depending on like where we are in our planning cycle there's some amount of time that goes in planning. And planning often means, you know, having a lot of conversations with different people across the company and trying to figure out our priorities and what different people need us to do and what we need other teams to do and kind of, you know, trying to mesh those things together. So there's like the process and the planning and just kind of like the actual running of the teams. And then I I think I also spend a, co- a fair amount of time on the people side and trying to and trying to actually help my team grow and develop and actually like, you know, hopefully get better out of their careers. So I think that that's roughly where I would say is my time split through the week.
0: In what ways does engineering management at Stripe differ from other companies that you've encountered?
1: So this is only my third job as an engineering manager. I think the biggest difference to me is the kind of team that I manage here compared to my previous two roles. I was in both my previous roles, I was managing product teams while they were like products for infrastructure, versus here I manage an infrastructure team within a product organization. So that's like a key difference because our users are fundamentally different. So at Stripe, my team's users are internal to Stripe versus in all my previous roles, we were building products for external users. And that has been quite a big shift. In terms of also where Stripe is, uh, technically, it's it's pretty different. It's a SaaS-based company versus the previous two companies were not. And what I really like is the pace and the energy that working at Stripe brings that I haven't encountered previously. We're at this really exciting time where everything is just We're like really shipping things incredibly fast. And there's just this sheer air of just like optimism that I encounter every day, which is not as familiar to me. And I think what it's really, I don't know if it's the same at other growing companies, but. It's something that I really like about working at Stripe, which is that we really, you really feel like you're building something meaningful, you're building things that people are using. You get a lot of positive and quick feedback on the things that you're building. You, you see people actually using your products out in the wild. And that to me is just like very, very gratifying.
0: So I, I saw a talk that you gave about career strategy, right? I, I looked through the slides and watched a little bit of the talk. And there was one slide you showed That was uh, about calendaring, like personal calendaring. And I have a few friends who are engineering managers who have shared their calendars with me. And on a rough week, it's just back to back everything. It's just, it looks tough. It looks like a lot of conversations with a lot of different people. It looks like there is no time between getting from conference room A to conference room B. Is that an anti-pattern, back-to-back everything in your calendar?
1: I think, so the the short answer is yes, it's an anti-pattern. But if you looked at my calendar, you would very much see the same today. So I completely agree that that's not how things should be. But for myself, I would be the first to confess that it's still very much a work in progress. I think that many years ago, I actually took this course where there's kind of like... um, the rest, I don't remember a lot of about the course, which was a management course, but they kind of talked about being in two different modes. One is like red, where you're kind of like reacting, essentially like, and that is the mode I think of when my calendar is full back to back, right? But you're kind of essentially driven by external things and you're just like reacting to things and you're just continuing to do things based on like, you know, essentially reaction, Versus a green mode is when you're like pausing and when you actually stop and you're like planning and strategizing and optimizing and building forward versus fixing fires. So I think being in both in either mode for too long is unhealthy. So you always want to strive for a balance. And I think this is where you can, af- what I've seen a lot of my colleagues do really effectively is actually use the calendaring intentionally. So you avoid, like you actually put up blocks of time, where you actually schedule times where no one else can, like, you know, overbook, can can book over it. You schedule particularly, like, downtime. You schedule things where you're, like, you know, you schedule time to think, you schedule time to plan. So, you use the whole idea of, like, having a back-to-back calendar, but you turn it around and actually schedule time for those things. And I talked about this in, a, in my talk a bit as well, which is uh, schedule time for learning. So, I... I am not there yet. Like, I haven't actually been that great about doing these things, but I think those are absolutely the right way to actually, like, get on your calendar. You have to actually, like, block things out intentionally.
0: Yeah, I put these events on my calendar, these recurring events, like, drink three glasses of water, which is like a a 30-minute event that I have every day. And originally, I I did it literally as a reminder to, to actually drink more water. But one thing I realized is... By doing that, I actually was kind of blocking off time in my calendar, which gave me these nice breathers between when I would schedule things. So, you know, if you're going to go back to back, maybe schedule almost non-events or schedule like, you know, two-minute events that will take, uh, you know, that you can allocate 30 minutes to on your calendar. Anyway, terrible productivity tip from me.
1: No, that that's actually a great one. Another thing, I, another very simple thing I do is all my meetings end either like at the five-minute or like the 10-minute before. And I think really just like questioning everything on your calendar, like does everything really need to exist? For instance, if you're just, Like if you have a weekly meeting and you continue to have it, maybe not actually scheduling it to like never end, having like a set expiry so that you actually have to question whether you still need that weekly meeting with someone. I do an occasional thing where I'll actually just like the week before revisit literally everything on my calendar and just like start saying no to pretty much everything that is not absolutely necessary.
0: Right, yeah, it's, it's not like the Kubernetes scheduler where it's like you want it to be extremely reliable, you want it to adhere to it as much as possible. This is like a uh, sometimes sometimes effective scheduler.
1: Exactly, and I think just recognizing that balance and make, making sure that you actually like build in buffer time is actually
0: really important. I'd agree with that. This was a talk that you gave on career strategy. Of all the things that you could have discussed, infrastructure virtualization payments you chose career strategy why that topic
1: that was just something that was top of mind for me like so when the talk when i was submitting the talk that was just something that was very much top of mind for me one is i was and i i talked about it in the introduction as well which is it's something that was top of mind for me which is i'm at a point in my career which is kind of very much like like a kind of inflection point where there's, you know, multiple options open and I can choose there. I was then, and still I'm at a point where I'm actually now supporting far more senior engineers than I have previously. And so you hit this point in your career where you're kind of like looking at all the options around you and trying to decide what you want to do. So to me, that was like a, that was actually like the most active problem on my mind at that point. And I thought it was one of the things where I had spent a lot of time thinking. So things I tend to like to talk about are things where I have, I have actually encountered a problem and where I've spent a fair amount of time thinking. And that's how I ended up proposing that particular talk.
0: One of the areas they explore is the career ladder. And career ladders are useful in the sense that they can give an engineer a map for how to move up as an engineer. Like Here's how you go from entry-level engineer to SDE2 to SDE3 and so on. Here's how you go into management. Here's how you become a senior manager, principal engineer, etc. The thing about career ladders is oftentimes I see that the people who make it really far in an organization or the people who make really fast progress in an organization, at least in, in modern organizations, they're not the ones who follow the career ladder they're the ones who invent something new within the company. And then they get to start an entire business unit. They're leading that business unit. Their salary kind of takes on a different momentum because it's not—it's no longer like really capped because they're sort of leading an internal entrepreneurial venture. So the idea of inventing something entirely, do you think we should have a separate track in the career ladder that encourages people to do that?
1: I think of it as um, so. Actually, I don't know if all companies do this, but I've actually seen this pattern in mul- multiple career ladders, and Stripes has it as well, where your kind of your your growth is actually determined by the impact, and different stages in the career ladder basically demonstrate your impact. So you start with like impact at the team, impact at the company, sorry, impact at the team organization stripe wide, or like industry-wide, right? And, and that kind of like defines your progression in the career ladder. And and that was actually true at, at VMware as well, where your, your kind of like progression, the career ladder was kind of determined by your impact. And often the folks at the highest levels in the career ladder w- were people who had done what you described. A- as an example, VMware had this title of principal engineer that was pretty much reserved for people that had kind of like, you know, essentially built out this, the, the entire, like, you know, new area of virtualization, the person who kind of developed vMotion, which is like a key technology, was one of those principal engineers. So I think that already exists. I'm not sure if it's really needs a parallel track. But I do think that there are often times when there are people who come along who are not necessarily exa- who don't necessarily fit in with that career ladder. And I think that's where you kind of go back to the idea of like the majority of folks will fit into your existing career ladder. But what do you do when someone comes along who is doing really great things but doesn't exactly fit into that? And I think, and I think that's where your career ladder needs to maybe be a bit more flexible. So I wouldn't call it so much as a parallel track as maybe flexibility in the career ladder.
0: There's this book called The Alliance by uh, Reed Hoffman. I don't know if you've, you've seen this book. I have not um, read it. I have heard about it, but I haven't actually read it. It's an interesting idea, which is that as a manager or a superior to somebody within a company, your relationship with your lower employees, the people who report to you, should be that your primary relationship that you're developing with them is actually, well, I could be misquoting the book, but I, I believe it's that the primary relationship you're developing with this person is a life potentially lifelong relationship where you're going to be an ally to this person in their 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 full scope of their career and your default assumption should basically be that this person is going to be at the company for 18 to 24 months and then they're going to go on to a different job do you have any reflections on that idea
1: I think that idea resonates with me a lot. It's something that I personally believe in from both sides, which is where I think one is our careers are so fluid now, right? For instance, it's like no one stays at the same company for longer than like a few years. So careers are fluid, people change careers, things change. So in the end, what really happens is that To me, it's kind of, it is a lot about the relationships you build along the way. And this goes for pretty much all of them, including the one of a manager and the person reporting to them. And I think it is, to me, I counted a success when, whenever I have a relationship with someone who's reporting to me, but that relationship is not tied to that particular job where we have built that relationship where we can actually continue to work in multiple places together, for example or we can continue to rely on each other outside of that one particular project or one particular role that we worked on together and i think that to me is is like where you've actually like built a truly productive kind of i guess in like like the book says alliance and i would actually like to expand it more than even just the manager report relationship right it, this this actually probably goes across the board it's actually like this is true for peers. This is true for like multiple people in any organization. And you actually see this a lot in Silicon Valley, where groups of people kind of go on to go on from company to company together and in, in really like, you know, create a lot of really great things together.
0: Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. The intersection between programming and money, how will it change in the next five to 10 years?
1: This is a really interesting one and really open-ended. So I think there's so many variables that it's really going to be interesting. I'm going to assume that when you say the intersection between programming and money, you mean kind of like what people get paid to program. Is, would that be correct?
0: I actually meant on the side of, uh, of, of of Stripe's business, like the API for payments. But I'll take the fir- the first one's interesting as well. Like you're talking about salary compensation. Let's do salary compensation first.
1: Okay. I honestly have no idea about the salary compensation because my answer there was going to be that there's just like way too many variables to actually like be able to make an accurate prediction on this. Like, for instance, there's so many things that are like policy or government or just like market forces that play into that, that it's really hard to actually make a prediction. And that was kind of going to be my non-answer to that question. On the other side, I think that's actually an even more interesting question around like programming and money. And I think what I find fascinating is how much things have changed there. For instance, I started, when, when I first started traveling, this was like back when I was very young, in my early 20s, people still, like you actually still went out and bought traveler's checks before, like, international travel. Like, this was already the tail end of it. Credit cards were already very common. But credit cards often didn't work, like, outside of the country that you kind of were in. And, like, you know, your credit card would often get declined. And so you'd either, like, actually uh, exchange cash or do something like traveler's checks and then travel without it, travel with it. But with the extent to which this has kind of been abstracted, like, through programming is just, to me, really fascinating where kind of similar to virtualization, where we've essentially added like these layers of essentially software on top of like currency that very few people actually have to handle hard cash these days. As an example, I was traveling in Sweden over the summer and Sweden is is almost like completely a cashless society. Like it's actually really hard. I think I went my entire trip without encountering any currency. Like literally, I was there for two weeks. And I did not actually see Swedish currency. I believe they use euros. But if you actually asked me, I would not be able to answer because I literally only used my standard American visa credit card for the entire trip for like literally everything. There was one place where a train station had pay, pay use restrooms, and you actually had to use your credit card. It did not have a coin or any other, like, you know, way of accepting payments. So to me, it's kind of similar to the way virtualization has worked, where, you know, you've built these layers and that have just, like, made it smoother and smoother and in very similar ways, right? Like, when when you're, like, dealing with hardware, you actually have to worry about the machines and, like, moving your software between machines. And so here you think about countries as being those boundaries. And now with the way payments has advanced, Like everything is like so transparent. You actually rarely actually encounter the underlying currency. And I think that's going to become far more widespread. So to me, it's kind of like Sweden to me was like a little bit of a glimpse of maybe what things will look like more commonly across the world.
0: One thing that I find kind of cool about at a certain point in in doing shows on Software Engineering Daily, the cryptocurrency boom happened. And when that boom happened, I I started reading a lot about it because a bunch of listeners wanted to know more about cryptocurrency. And so I did a bunch of shows and I read a bunch about it. And money is interesting because when you go down the rabbit hole of what money actually is, or like what money represents to people, it can really turn a lot of beliefs that you have on their head. At least in in, in my case, it was kind of a It was almost like, I don't want to call it like a religious experience, but it was like a a very jarring experience. Because I, you know, for a long time I was like, yeah, dollars and, you know, these green things, like, yeah, it's money. You know, it's got value. Are there any ways in which working, so this will be the last question, are there any ways in which working with money at such a granular level have kind of restructured your beliefs about value or finance or anything that you you held dear for a very long time?
1: I don't think it has really restructured my beliefs in a way, but I think the idea of Stripe's mission, and I think just the idea that access to opportunity can be like so, can can really change things for the better. I think that that to me has really been a very kind of positive learning over the last couple of years, which is we're allowing people access to things which was like, you know, not possible before and to me that was that to me was like was a pretty big shift in learning and kind of just, just like thinking about the way things work in the world
0: yeah yeah. even just the, the API surface I've, I mean I found it transformative in how I think about software so I've yeah that's I've, I've been a big fan of Stripe so Uma thank you for coming on the show it's been really fun talking to you great thank you so much